Whenever I meet with a new company, one of the things I always ask the CEO is, what are your biggest priorities? What are the top two or three things you need to work on this year? And you'd be surprised at how many don't have that regularly at at hand. They haven't identified what they're working on. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Agnell, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on today's episode of the Inspire podcast is William Kilmer. And William's an entrepreneur, he's a venture capital investor, he, and he's an author as well, which we'll get to in a moment. William had an incredible track record. You know, you've founded in, and invested in dozens of companies. You've spent 25 years in tech. You've served on the board of over 20 companies on three continents and uh, an advisor to venture capital funds. So really appreciate you coming on the Inspire podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Bart. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I know you've recently published a book, uh, Transformative. And I know that's that's the book and the content in it that we're going to talk about today. Tell me about the book. What inspired you to write it and what would you say it tackles? Yeah, thanks. Um, so Transformative really comes from, I think, both my personal experience of working in companies as an operator, as well as what I've seen for the last you know 20 plus years as a, an investor and a board member for a lot of different companies in the tech space. And you know, one of the things that I've always had an intensity of curiosity about has been what makes a company so great? You know, what really makes a company stand out? But one of the things that I did was really embarked on this journey of looking at some of the most influential, maybe, you know, again, deep kind of call transformational companies out there and you know, I found three really key things that I think were in those companies that oftentimes were lacking in some of the companies that I've worked with or or have seen and I've tried to coach them towards. And they were, you know, three things really. One was how to create something that is really uniquely differentiated and valuable to the customer. And you know, when we talk about that, we often think about product. You know, how do I create this great product? And what I've seen with a lot of these companies is that they are more focused on the customer outcome and innovating that than necessarily the product or the service. The second is that they focus on developing market leadership. And in particular, one of the things I think is interesting is almost every company that I've looked at in the last 20 years that has been significantly successful has really been able to sort of carve out a market for themselves to be the leader of that market and then see that grow over time. And then the third piece, which I think we'll talk about today and what is unique about my book in particular is that they've been able to also cultivate a very agile organization that can be competitive today and also can thrive through a constantly shifting business environment. And those three things, you know, as simple as they sound, are just often lacking with a lot of the organizations that, you know, I think we deal with day to day. Yeah. And I think, you know, in reading your book and thanks thanks for sharing a copy and I, I encourage people as someone uh, who loves clear thinking and and making complexity easily digestible kudos to you on a great great prose and, and easy to read book 
that it is that third piece that I thought is fits with what we talk about in the Inspire podcast, which is, you know, how to lead, how to inspire an organization and to really create that that culture. So when you when you study these these transformational companies, transformative companies who have been successful, and you looked at that third component. How what did you find that the leadership did to create that culture? I know you have kind of three things that you found that cut across. What was the first one? Yeah. So the the very first one that I have, so just in summary, the three that that I note in the book in particular, and there are three separate chapters on on this, is one, you know, building this sense of intentionality uh, for the organization, which we'll come back to. Second is uh, being able to to build and found a culture that actually feeds strategy rather than, you know, going back to the old colloquialism that, you know, the strategy is, or that culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's a culture that feeds strategy. And then the third is really being able to build a challenge setting organization, one that looks immediately ahead, identifies what its most important challenges are and prioritizes those. Okay. So let's start with that first one, intentionality. What exactly does this mean? Yeah. So, you know, intentionality from my perspective is this idea that organizational leadership is not there from a command and control perspective. Their job is really to, you know, be able to define a path for the organization to go towards sort of, you know, seek that mountain that they're going to go conquer, but also be able to leave that opening to, to both inspire the team and also enable them to be able to help build that vision. So, you know, when I think about intentionality, I think about, you know, the types of leaders who can really visualize the space that they want to go to and help the company to get there, but recognize that this is really a team interdependent effort. I think about some of the examples that are out there today. Uh, You know, Steve Jobs, I think, was great at this. As much as he was a micromanager, and I think, you know, there are issues that he probably had in terms of his management style, he was also inspiring in terms of, you know, where he wanted to take the company it really helps bring people behind him. You know, Satya Nadella uh, from Microsoft, I think, is also one that has been able to do this. And really, you know, we've seen one of the biggest turnarounds with Microsoft in the last, you know, few years based on that type of intentionality-based leadership. Hmm. So, if you're if someone you, you've obviously referenced to, you know, transformative and hugely successful CEOs, someone listening says, "All right, you know, how do I start?" practicing this intentionality. And let's say they're not the CEO. Let's say they're a VP. They're a member of a leadership team, mid-sized company. What would be your piece of advice to them on how they can begin to embed this into creating the right culture? Yeah. You know, so I think intentionality, you know, really starts with a couple of things. And I learned this maybe from my own experience early on without even knowing how to, you know, identify it or define it. Um, I started my career with a startup organization that eventually we got bought by Intel Corporation. And, um, you know, when we were building the company that we were building, you know, we were in the networking space. We were focused on, you know, how to get to a new customer segment. And one of the things that we did was a lot of intense, you know, market research. We went out and talked to people and, you know, we built sort of the typical profile, profile of a user, you know, customer profile. And, you know, one of the things that we did was we really just personalized it and made it sort of aspirational in terms of who we were going after and, you know, the type of customer that we wanted to reach. And what we found was just by identifying that individual and putting some context around what we were looking to do, we actually inspired the team to the point where everybody was really looking at not just what do we have to build, but 
what should we include and how should we build it for that particular that particular customer? And I always say, back in the time when we were doing this, when you know I was on the product side and we were leading a lot of the product and marketing efforts, and I'm sitting across the table from the head of engineering who is you know identifying that customer and saying, well, we don't think he wants this. You know, let's let's come to the table and figure out what is you know what is going to be best for that customer. You just see how inspirational that is. And at the end of the day, when we got acquired and we went, um, you know, we were working with Intel, um, we had one of the vice presidents who, uh, that we were working with who sat down at lunch with me one time and said, you know, the reason why we acquired you guys wasn't necessarily your technology. It wasn't necessarily the product. It was the fact that when we came to you, you know, we understood that you knew who your customer was. And that you were actually, you know, you were defining something that you were going to build specifically for that, that customer. And that sort of aspirational element is what we were always looking for, which is, you know, any intentionality starts with, um, you know, a, a customer aspiration. So you think about, for example, you know, again, going back to the Steve Jobs side and stretching way back to the, the iPod, when he was first coming out with the iPod or when Apple was first coming out with the iPod, one of the things that he said was, we want to put a thousand songs in people's pockets. Very aspirational, very focused on what the customer wants, but also very open in terms of what does that mean? Or, you know, you think about Reed Hastings from Netflix. They've gone through three different generations of Netflix. And through that whole time, they've been guided by an intentionality statement that, you know, he provided Back at the foundation of the company, which was we want to provide a steady live, a steady access to movies that our users will love, right? And those right. are the types of things that help inspire that. Yeah. So what what I'm hearing from you around intention, it's almost you know we at the Humphrey Group, you know, we we always start our work in mindset, right? And really around this intention to lead, intention to inspire. And for us, it, it, that first principle is around vision. And I'm hearing from you that when you talk about these aspirational intentions it, it it's almost vision as well right like that it brings people in and gives them something customer focused to aspire to is that right when you're thinking about intention yes yeah absolutely you know what we're focused on is that customer orientation and aspirational vision right something that is uh you know really empowering something that provides maximum options and you know allows the allows the team to come forward and help define you know what that is so once you have that so that's very clear once you have that let's turn to your second point and you talk a lot about culture and values talk to me about what this second step that you saw in successful transformative companies was yeah so you know the second step that that i see is really around building a culture and you know building the type of culture that helps you to succeed today and that helps you to be agile for, you know, for future changes. You know, one of the things that I think I've seen in my studies, and I, I, this, this one in particular, I think is important for me. I spend a fair amount of my time teaching organizations about how to define and build their own culture. And I've spent, some, I've spent so much time with sort of mid-stage venture startups that, you know, maybe have 10 or $15 million in revenue already. They're starting to grow up in, in a lot of ways. And I've worked with CEOs who then, you know, kind of get to the point to say, okay, now I can take a breath and, you know, think about culture and how do I define, right. you know, what our culture is. And, you know, one of the problems with that is, well, you've really had a culture since day one, 
and here you are maybe three or four or five years into it and now you're trying to define hmm. it it's so, too late you already you know, have something you're trying to reshape what you have instead yeah, of create exactly. from the start exactly exactly yeah and i think you know it's never too late but it's always harder to go back hmm. and change something that's already been built over over the years so, you know, I've spent a lot of time in particular with early stage companies that are just starting, maybe there's two people, five people to think about how do they build a, you know, a culture that, that works for their organization. And the one thing that I come back to time and again, and I think this is backed up by research, is that it is important that you are defining a culture that is unique to your organization. And in particular, having supporting values that are unique to your organization. There have been studies done with Fortune 500 companies looking at you know, the values that they have versus the performance of the organization. And what stands out is that those companies that have unique values, which to me relates to they've thought about what they actually need as an organization, mm -hmm. tend, tend to perform better than those who have more you know, generic values that, that contribute to their, their culture. In your book, you know, one of the companies you reference is Netflix. And you talked about, you know, how Netflix has gone through so many iterations, but it's really the culture that Reed Hastings, I know he's just stepped down at the time of recording this, that put into practice allowed the organization to evolve. Can you, can you talk a bit about what that looks like and how Netflix has ridden that culture to success? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I highlight in the book is, is around what Netflix calls their culture deck, in which, you know, I think comes from Reed Hastings' experience um, from running his previous startup, uh, where, you know, he really tried to define everything that people were doing inside of the organization. And, you know, there's a natural progression. Right, like like about, almost prescriptively. Uh, exactly. And, you know, he came to the conclusion where I think he said, you know, something like if we, you know, if we write everything down and, and you know, sort of codified every process so that any dummy can follow it. We're only going to have dummies at our organization. Right? Right. Nobody who really right. wants to, nobody really wants to be in that environment. You know, they're, they're all going to want to leave. So, you know, he developed this culture at Netflix, which is really much more open. And, you know, but importantly, I think one of the things that he asked is, you know, what should our culture look like um, as an organization? And they sat down and encoded sort of this idea of, we have expectations for you as an organization. But we also are giving you freedoms that, you know, we're not going to, um, you know, we're not going to prescribe everything in the organization. And I think that's that's really important for people to to understand. Be, beyond that, you know, I think for every organization where they really need to start is this idea that, you know, in my opinion, there are three really fundamental advantages to to culture. And what are they? One is first is that culture is going to help you to manage your organization better. And, and I think that's a really important piece of it. I've seen this in organizations where when you're setting culture, which at the end of the day is, you know, maybe a set of shared assumptions that guide behavior, it's your values, it's your customs, it's your beliefs, the norms. And when you have that in place and you are, you're actively having everybody participate and expect others to do so, it makes it easier to manage. Number two is that Culture is going to provide you with differentiation. Um, it's going to set you apart from your peers, from other organizations that you're competing with for, uh, for employees. And it's going to help you also to differentiate yourself to your customer because you're giving, you're, you're enabling your employees more. And then third is 
your your culture should help you also to be more agile, to be able to anticipate issues coming forward in the future and to adapt your company, you know, over time. So it helps you with adapting your strategy. So so I another statistic you had, I mean, you look at those three compelling benefits and of course there are those quotes like culture eats strategy for breakfast. One statistic that that you shared that I think is just begs the question why is that 70% of companies say culture is critically important and yet only 20% of CEOs allocate time to it. Why this gap? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think that study if I remember correctly was done by Bazars and uh, and INSEAD. And what they found was, you know, most CEOs will say culture is really important. And in fact, they they rate it in their top 3 priorities as an organization. The reality is, you know, they don't spend as much time on it. As I mentioned, you know, maybe maybe 20% spend any time or significant time on it. And I think fundamentally, most leaders just have not been well-trained on the advantages and the importance of it. But I think also they haven't been as trained as well with the practice of how do you reinforce your culture? How do you bring more people into it? And this is one of the things that I have in the book, which I think is important, is there's actually an exercise that I have in here for how people can go back and audit their own culture and identify what are those practices and you know, do so as a leadership team, which involves them you know, really sort of getting out into the company, doing interviews um, on a personal level, incorporating this into smaller group sessions to be able to identify what some of the issues are, using cross-group, cross-group sessions in particular where people can speak openly and not kind of fear well, you know, the person next to me is, uh, you know, is a direct coworker, and you know, really be able to identify what their culture is, and then identify what their aspirations are, and be able to use that as a very logical process to sort of take where they are and how they're going to reach the, the gap, you know, to where they aspire to be. So, so let me ask you something on that topic. Uh, you know, as someone who really follows tech and changes in tech world, I mean, here we are. This is early 2023, and you know the last year has seen just a wave of layoffs across tech, you know, as big formal, even formal Star Wars companies like Amazon and Google do reductions and, you know, led perhaps by led inspired, who knows what, by what Elon's done with a massive reduction at Twitter, there seems to be a shift in culture that's happening where organizations are saying, we're going to move less from kind of caring for our employees and, and give catering to them perhaps to more a more um employer centric you know you deliver for us are you is this a broad cultural shift and if so what are your thoughts on it yeah i think there's been a lot of speculation about this certainly you know we clearly have seen particular with elon musk and twitter a big shift i've seen and heard people maybe especially in silicon valley expressing that this may be the wave of, of where things are shifting and it is a big pendulum shift from where we were say in 2020 and 2021 where there was such a you know a squeeze on the labor market that you know people were really going over you know over the top in terms of the compensation packages and you know the, the, how they were treating new employees and the perks and benefits I think, though, at the end of the day, this this model is going to prove itself out in the performance of, of companies. So, so Twitter is in a particularly difficult situation, obviously, right now, having lost a significant amount of revenue. But I would I'm still willing to wager on the differences between a company that sort of tries this you know, top down command and control. Somebody is going to by by dictate 
you know, decide what's happening in the organization and more of a ground up organization where people feel like they, they are part of the culture, they have commonality of beliefs, norms, et cetera. I think we're going to see those companies outperform these sort of individual companies that, you know, in, in the future or going forward. And I think a lot of this is going to be a contest between sort of that command and control and directive versus an interdependency model and recognizing that you want to build an environment in which you're tapping all of your talent. They feel, you know, unencumbered. They feel like, you know, they can provide input. They can provide feedback on the strategy. They can help to drive that. And we're going to ultimately see that that's going to be more successful in the long run. So which I'm curious then, which culture do you think Twitter had and which does it is Elon creating? Yeah, well, because you know, <laughs> sure. I'm trying to I, see, you know, or yeah. is it like a Rorschach diagram where, where you, yeah, <laughs> what do you think? It's a, it's a great question. I'm not sure of what, you know, Twitter's culture was beforehand. Right. Um, certainly, I think like many other companies, it sort of fell into this loop of the hiring issues that we've had. And, you know, as a growing company, it probably outgrew it itself in terms of the number of employees that it brought in. But certainly, I think we have a very top-down command and control, command by Twitter type of an environment that's been put in place by Elon Musk. And I don't think that's going to be effective in the long run. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. I mean, I, I'm with you. You know, I think particularly maybe his style works, well, did work brilliantly for, you know, Tesla and for SpaceX and others, but the jury's out there. So anyway, so... Unfortunately, we don't have to spend the billions on the debt payments to figure out <laughs> what. But let's for for people listening who are saying, okay, so culture is critically important. I agree. I want to allocate time to it. You've said, you know, assess your culture, build the path to right culture. What is the the quickest way for someone to begin assessing their culture today? Yeah. So you know, I think there's there's a few things that I would look at to start the journey. First is make sure that you have the basic elements in place as an organization. You know, have a vision statement, mission statement, and set what I call your worldview or the context for the organization, right? Identify the why behind why you exist um, as an organization. One of the things I like is for people, for leaders to be able to set up an explanation of this is the reason why we're here today. One great example I have is a CEO that I've worked with for years. And, you know, she did this, I think, just so well where she developed with her leadership team and with, with you know, the second level down below that, uh, this, I, this idea that you know, there was a reason why they were there today. And they identified the, the trends that were happening in the market, the setting that was out there and how it affected both their customer as well as them. Then the next step, she talked about what the customer's needs were, you know, what they were looking to accomplish. And then she had a third step, which was to identify here is the type of company that we need to be in terms of our competencies and our capabilities in order to be able to achieve what our customer needs. And she would pull that out in every meeting to talk about context. Here's why we're here. You know, here's what the customer needs, uh, or you know, here's the background, here's what the customer needs, here's why we're here. And then set the vision and mission of this is what we're trying to accomplish. That was always like that. The, you know, the first, first level. The second was to do the audit that we had talked about and, you know, really identify what is it that the company knows, you know, about our culture? How do they explain it? Do you look at any of the particular values that we have? Are we living them or are we not living them? And then third is to, is to identify what do you think is the target culture, right? What values, beliefs, practices do we need to be successful today? 
and extend that out to your leadership team, even to the entire organization to provide feedback on that. Then next, I would really look at how do you center that on values? Can you encapsulate that into a handful of values for the organization? Your agreed upon beliefs and guiding principles, they're going to help you, you know, be successful. And they, they don't have to be a lot for, for you to be able to do that, but, you know, establish those. And then lastly, you know, what I look at is how do you create anchors in the company, both people who are very culturally aware and will help reinforce that? You know, where do you do that in meetings? You know, how do you recognize and reward people for, you know, helping to enforce and build build the culture in the organization? Yeah, I like that. So it's really about start with that self-assessment, get the aspirational culture, and then, you know, get the values and people to get you there. So, okay, so that's your second point. You know, so point one, begin with intention, you know, really the kind of the vision. Point two, create a culture, you know, through this process. And point three, you talk about becoming a challenge-setting organization. What is a challenge-setting organization? Yeah, so to me, this is the pinnacle, you know, building on this idea of intentionality on, on culture is, you know, how do you set up an organization that really is able to adapt over time and identify some of the most significant challenges that you have and how you overcome them? I learned this as a manager in my very early days at Intel Corporation. I remember when we had a pretty significant issue happening in the market where we were being attacked by lower end competitors. And, you know, an identification came from the senior management of the organization of this is the situation that we're in. And here are the steps that we're going to take that are our most important priorities right now. And I thought, you know, we live in this environment today where we're constantly in peril in terms of market shifts, customer preferences and changes, new technology coming up. So how do organizations do this? And so, you know, one of the things I looked at was how do I find models out there that I think are, are similar both in terms of what's happening in business and outside of that? And there are great companies who practice things like this all the time. Intel was one of them. Amazon, I think, is absolutely one. There's this idea that, uh, that Jeff Bezos has about staying in day one mode, you know, constantly reevaluating your priorities in order to sustain growth and performance. But one of the models that I came across that I think was most significant was this idea of an OODA loop, uh, which was actually created back in the 1960s by a, uh, an Air Force captain or an Air Force colonel, uh, John Boyd. And he developed this because over his career, what he saw from sort of the 1946, I think, when he started as a pilot, where, you know, they were flying uh, airplanes that were maybe 400 miles an hour at the end of World War II or so, to, you know, when he was a colonel, they're now flying airplanes that are 1,600 miles an hour, right? Four times faster. And one of the things that he looked at is how do you, um, how do you build a model that allows your pilots to actually be able to respond to these extremely fast combat situations that they're in? And so he developed a, a study and named it, you know, aerial attack study in which he, had, he identified this OODA loop. And the idea here is that OODA loop is a mnemonic for four phases. You know, one is observation. You know, how do you collect data and information about your current situation? Number two, the, the second O is orientation. How do you uh, identify, analyze, and synthesize your data and find where you are relative to that? So the idea is, you know, first, you take a snapshot of what's happening in the market, what's changed, you know, why are things different, what trends are coming up, how do you orientate yourself to that? And then the third is decision, which is 
you know, resolving yourself to a defined course of action. What few things do you need to work on right now that will really take you forward? And one of the things that I always keep as a mantra about this is, you know, we can come up with a laundry list of things, but it's really those top, you know, one, two, or three priorities that are going to make all the difference. And then four is how do you execute on that? You know, you, you execute, take action, make it measurable, and identify what success looks like. And you start that loop over. And that whole OODA loop is the idea of being able to constantly, as an organization, look at your landscape, orientate yourself to it, make decisions about what your top few priorities are, and then take measurable actions that you can go back and quantify you know, how well you've done to them. Well, I think this is, you know, I just think of our own business, you know, for, I've been in the Humphrey Group, you know, for over 20 years. And for a long time, the nature of the market, the work, was the same you know it was marginal changes in how our clients were communicating how we delivered training and then in the last five years it has been a dramatic change digital learning virtual learning you know global delivery and you really do have to continually challenge yourself to reassess you know what is the what is the opportunity what is where the changes before you make a decision so I can see that, you know, all business, and I know all businesses are going through this kind of radical change, you know, and so this observe, orient, decide, act framework, I think, makes a lot of sense. And so is this something that you're, you want the leaders, like leaders should come together and go through this loop regularly? Is that what you'd advise? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is something that I would look at uh, on a very periodic uh, level whether it's every quarter, every half year, you know, maybe every year. But for most organizations, what I look at is what priorities do they have right now? And when are they going to take a decision point on? Are those still their priorities or they need to look at, at something new? Whenever I meet with a new company, one of the things I always ask the CEO is, what are your biggest priorities? What are the top two or three things you need to work on this year? And you'd be surprised at how many don't have that regularly at, at hand. They haven't identified what they're working on. That's step one. The other issue I think that, that people need to be aware of, leaders need to be aware of, is making sure that even when they're going through their process, that they're sort of stripping away their own biases. You know, we tend to have in, in the observed phase our own anchor biases that we accept the first data points that we've seen. We have filtering problems where, you know, we tend to filter information that's coming in so we don't get, you know, a broader viewpoint on things. We have confirmation bias. I mean, a lot of those things we sort of need to be able to step away from. And that's why it's critical that this is a team effort, right? And that you're bringing people in with different points of view to be able to really help you to overcome a lot of those natural filtering tendencies and biases. Super helpful. And, you know, just to sum up the three, so I'm hearing one, intentionality, define that vision that's aspirational. Two, focus on culture. Don't just talk about it's important. Spend the time to assess, build, and nurture it. And three, create this challenge-setting mindset, challenge-setting organization. You know, back to your time at Intel, I think it was Andy Grove who said only the paranoid survive. And clearly, you know, that was that was not just a saying, but a, a practice. So have this, this OODA loop process. And by doing these three things, it, you know, I, what I'm hearing that you found in your book is that this is, are some of the differentiating behaviors for leaders. So that, have I, have I captured it? Anything you'd add there? I think you've captured it perfectly, you know, and to me, 
so much of this is about, you know, not believing that you know all the answers, but knowing how to ask the right questions. Just to go back maybe to the beginning of this book, one of the things that, that I start off the book with is a story from Intel War, which is about, you know, Andy Grove and the management team early on, you know, in the mid-1980s, running into some really significant problems. And to make a long story short, they had decided at that time that they knew what the answer was to their problems, but they were unwilling to go and do it because they knew how much, how difficult it would be. And then eventually they had come to the conclusion that the only way that they could rebuild the business was essentially to walk outside and then walk back in as if they were a new management team. And that's, to me, that's the big you know, message of the book is that it's within the reach of any leader to walk outside of their organization and sort of take a look at where they are and reassess you know, what they need. And these three cultural elements are, you know, a significant part of, I think, how they can retool their organization to be successful. Super helpful. It's a great book. We'll link to it in the show notes. Any other resources that that you'd recommend for people who are keen to start building their leadership capacity in this area? You know, I I publish regularly on this, so people can find me on LinkedIn. Um, They can also go to my website at williamkilmer.com. And of course, Anyone wants to reach out to me directly, they're they're welcome to. My email address is uh, William at WilliamKilmer.com. Would love to hear from people. Well, William, I really appreciate hearing from you and for the conversation and the insights. Uh, I think in this, you know, ever changing world, you know, your insights around what great leaders do are, are most welcome. So, thanks so much. Thank you, Bart. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed my conversation today with William Kilmer and uh, appreciate the insights that he provide around why culture is an often overlooked part of transformative business success. And I thought he'd provide some really tangible takeaways on how to take a tough, honest look at your culture, how to create a challenge culture, how to continually practice reorienting your decision-making and certainly some valuable things there for any leader. Next time on the pod, I'm joined by Sherry Walling. Sherry is a PhD. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a podcaster. If you are in the entrepreneurship space, you may have listened to her Zen Founder podcast, which has been going for a while and has a great following. And she joins me to talk about mental health and what entrepreneurs, but also what leaders are facing now. And the pressures on leaders have never been greater. The time for self-care has never been shorter. And so she talks to me about what she's seen with her clients, not just entrepreneurs, but leaders in general, and what to do about it. So tune in next time. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the pod, please rate and review it. Every time you promote the pod, it helps new people find it. Glad you're enjoying and uh, may all your communications be inspiring.